I invite you to turn me in first John, turn with me in first John chapter four. I don't put a premium on feelings because feelings can mislead you easily. But I can't deny that they exist. And I'm entertaining two strong feelings this morning. One, God wants to do something in this place today. And two, the devil is completely against it. It's strange. I'm not trying to be spooky here. But I do sense... a certain oppression. The music that we've enjoyed, the spirit that we've had in the past, the people that are here that love each other, on most days, the atmosphere would be much lighter. And there'd be more shouting and there'd be more amening. And yet we're withheld from it because there's just something weighing on us this morning. I stand to testify to you that I have a God who sits on a throne that will not allow the devil to have this day. Amen. You hear me, Satan? In Jesus' name, I rebuke you. I command you to leave this place. All the imps of hell have no standing before the almighty God of the universe. You'll not have this time. You'll not have this time. Gracious Father, please, Lord, in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, take over this meeting. Cleanse me and anybody else that needs it. Speak to us directly and undeniably and do something that only you can do. Have your will and way in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You just don't know the road I traveled to get to this pulpit this morning. I had a great message planned out of Psalm 27. I was excited about it, and I could not get peace about it. So I found myself in Judges, chapter 8. Got well into that message's preparation. God said no. Now, I know preachers that they have their calendar set up a year in advance of what they're going to preach every week, and they're just, they're never, they never doubt it, and they just push right through. I wish I was that guy. I'm just not. Now, don't get me wrong. The study was helpful, and they'll produce messages that'll get preached at another time. I got to eight o'clock last night not knowing what to preach. Two messages before me. Messages that'll preach, y'all. I mean, it'll preach. It'll look good on paper. God said no. 
All right, Lord, it's 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. I am tired and I am hungry. As I'd often do to clear my mind, I involve music. And the first song to come up It's as though the Holy Spirit whispered, why don't you preach on that? I don't advertise that kind of thing much because I take very seriously what I preach and how I arrive at that. But in this particular case, that's exactly what happened. Man, so many subjects that I have on my heart that I thought might find their way to this morning. Repentance, revival, discouragement, not giving up, being holy for God, not being fearful, claiming victory. But as I entertain all these subjects and their accompanying passages, I cannot help but return to the one grand subject that envelops all of them. That which motivates redemption and in which we can rest all of our hopes for the future. And that subject is the love of God. Tim Keller, a popular author, a Presbyterian preacher, recently went home to be with the Lord after a couple of years of battling cancer. And uh, I have a few of his books in my library. He's an excellent writer. He was asked not long before he died how he found peace despite his soon coming death. And what he said struck me so deeply. He was speaking on the subject of the resurrection of Christ, and he said this, if that's true, if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, then the only conclusion we can make is that everything's going to be okay. I've thought on that a lot. I've allowed my train of thought to go a little further down the line, and so I start asking myself questions. That's how I arrive at certain conclusions and certain sermon points, is I start asking questions and looking for answers. So here's the question, why did Jesus raise from the dead? Well, he rose from the dead because he died. Okay, well, then why did he die? Well, he died because he bore my sin and suffered my shame. And he had to die in my place. Okay, well, why in the world did he go through all of that? And it arrived at this one word, love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And right here in our text, in verse number 10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the covering, the mercy seat, the stand between for our sins. My one conclusion must then be, if God truly loves us as the Bible proclaims, then in Christ everything will be okay. Amen. 
What then is the answer to heartache, to discouragement, to fear, to the need for holiness, to the need for revival, the desperate need for victory? What's the answer? The answer always begins and ends with the love of God. This is not the physical pleasure of Eros love, the warm fuzziness of Storge love, or even the secure familial bond of, of Phileo love. This love is the changeless, willful commitment of a sovereign God who has decided to extend His grace to us even though we could never merit such kindness. This is a love that freely offered to a fallen creation has over and again cursed and rejected His overtures. Yet this is a love that will never be rescinded from those who receive it though they fail Him time and time and time again. This is the sole use of the word love throughout John's first epistle and, and most of his other writings. The intentional expression of favor known as agape love. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what you're going through, but I know where you need to end up. Are you lost and in need of salvation? Are you disheartened and in need of encouragement? Are you unhappy and in need of joy? Are you afraid and in need of confidence? Are you confused and in need of direction? Are you defeated and in need of victory? I know where you can find everything you need and more. You can find it squarely in the center of your awareness that there's a sovereign, limitless, intentional God who loves you more than you can fathom and possesses the answer answer for every question that you can entertain. May I direct you this morning to the place of ultimate fulfillment, of ultimate answer, of ultimate direction, of ultimate encouragement, and that is the warm embrace of the love of God. First John chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only, only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Gracious Father, help me with this message, I pray. May it find good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. We fundamentalists, we're scared to death to talk about the love of God because we don't want to be identified with the crowd that doesn't say anything about His holiness and His righteousness and doesn't preach against sin. Well, I've got news for you. There's no answer for the sin that we're mired in if there's no love in God. Love didn't save us. Grace through faith saves us. But love motivates that offer. God's love wasn't enough to save us, but his love is what motivated him to send his son. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded that we serve a God who is the absolute, number one, embodiment of love. God doesn't just do love. 
He is love. I'm so, it's so easy for me, Aaron, to forget that. I grew up, I grew up in a, in a culture where in the Trinity, the Father is mad at us all the time. He is constantly offended. His righteousness has been sullied and he just can't wait to drop the hammer on us. But the son died for us, and so the son keeps the father from doing what he really wants to do. That's the mindset that I grew up in. Now, it is true, and the Holy Spirit just kind of floats around and does what he does. That's the mindset that I grew up in. But you know what I have found? (laughs) First of all, we've talked about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a whole lot more active a person in our lives than we give him credit for. And as much God as the father and the son And yes, Jesus did take our sins upon himself and died in our place and lives. And yes, Jesus is our advocate that stands at the bar. And every time the saints are accused by that low-down, rotten, no-good Lucifer, Jesus just steps forward and reminds Satan. He doesn't mean need to remind the Father. He reminds Satan, I took care of that boy November 29th, 1979, when my blood washed his sins away. So to use another message we preach, hey, Satan, sit down and hush up. Satan accuses me regularly, and he's failed every time. And the Father is righteous, and he is holy, and he will pour his wrath out on this world. But never forget that it is his love that motivated all of this. Jesus came at the behest of the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father is love, and he's the embodiment of love and love is the embodiment of God. We see that in verse number nine. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. I'm sorry, that's not right. Verse number seven. That's a good verse too, though. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. If we're to be identified with God, we can't do that apart from love. I'm an independent, fundamental, King James tote and mad at everybody Baptist. So I'm allowed to say what I'm about to say. But if you're not an independent Baptist, you're not allowed to say what I'm about to say, and nor are you allowed to amen it. We really missed the boat on this one. We got a whole generation of people that are in the wind because we decided that we were going to major on holiness and righteousness, and so we should, but we completely forgot to mention anything about the love of God. And we got really good at telling people what they were doing wrong and explaining to people how they needed to be more like us. Remember, legalism is how to be more like me. Holiness is how to be more like him. See? And we got really good at quick little sound bites. I'll tell you one that's flew out here here recently. Just It just gets all over me. I'm a King James guy. In fact, we talked about that in Sunday school with our teenagers, why we use the King James. I made it abundantly clear, and I hope they pass that along, because if they come home to you and tell you to throw your version in the garbage, they did not hear that from me. 
I'm a King James guy for reasons that are my own, and, and, and the church has these reasons that we, we hold on to. And I do believe it's the, it's the most reliable, um, trustworthy translation that's available. But you know what? I got a lot of people that I know that love God, that are serving God, that use other translations. I disagree with them, but not harshly. I just, I use mine. It, it really comes down to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? But I know people, they get so mean and vitriolic over this issue. I've heard preachers say terrible, terrible things, and the most recent one is this. Yeah, some of these preachers abandon the King James. I guess they're transtextuals. I hate that kind of foolishness. How in the world does that help us win a lost and dying world for Christ? We're going to use terminology like that and be that. That is absolutely devoid of any kind of love. You can preach the truth, and you can preach it straight, and you can be a hard, fire, and brimstone preacher and still love people. And if I get up here and I rip face, but I never shed a tear, there's something wrong with me. Mm. It's like I told these teenagers, we use the King James here in school, but if you read a new King James at home or a new American Standard, I'd rather you do that than not read anything at all or read some of the other options you have. We gotta love people. And you know what? You can take a stand for what's right and still love people. And I would assert to you that sometimes you're not loving people if you don't take the stand for what's right. If somebody comes to me and says, is Jesus the only way to heaven? The only loving answer I can give them is Jesus is the only way to heaven. God is the embodiment of love and love is the embodiment of God. No right worship of or service to God can be accomplished apart from that which is his very essence. If you come here and you're fired up and you're motivated and you're mad at sin and everything else, but there's been no love, then we missed it. Because God is love. You know what else? Love is the embodiment of God. Love is the expression of God. How does God touch us? How does he reveal himself to us? How does he demonstrate himself to us? And the answer is love. Verse number 9. This was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only son, his only begotten son, into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a great word, propitiation. How does God demonstrate his intentions towards us? He does so through love. (laughs) You know, little boys, when they're a certain age, how do they demonstrate their intentions towards a girl? They call her names. And they throw stuff at her. But what I've learned is usually when they're doing stuff like that, it means they fancy that girl. But they have not matured to the point that they know how to properly express that. But there comes a point that what do they do? Love. When I decided to pursue my wife, who at that time was not my wife. 
I'll get to that in a minute. I did not sneak up behind her and hit her on the head, nor did I call her names. Oh, no, Jack, I poured it all out, man. I wrote poetry. I left notes on her car. That was after we were married because we lived in separate states before we were married. That's a long drive to leave a note on somebody's car. <laughs> How does God make sure that you know what his intentions are to you? The most pure, unadulterated, self-sacrificing love you can imagine. Head and play around. He wants to make sure that you know how much he loves you. And he expressed it most beautifully by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation. There's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Propitiation literally means covering. But uh, in the Old Testament, the Greek word that is translated propitiation in the New Testament is translated in two words in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus, and it's called the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? The mercy seat is that golden lid, that solid gold lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Had the two cherubim with the wings overspread, the crown around the top picturing the deity of Christ, his royalness. And here's what would happen. The Shekinah glory of God would come and dwell between the wings of those cherubim on top of the mercy seat. It signified the presence of God. And once a day on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come in and offer the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat, the top of that lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he'd back out and hope that the Shekinah glory of God came down on it, signifying he had accepted their offering. And he better back out because if he's in there when God gets there, he's dead. That's why they had a rope around his ankle to pull him out because nobody could go in and get him. But you know what was inside that ark? The Ten Commandments. The law. What does the law do? The law doesn't save anybody, but the law expresses to us why we need to be saved. The law is what condemns us. So in the box is that which condemns us. Over top of the box is the presence of God. But when he looks down, he does not see the law that's inside, that which condemns us. You know what he sees? The blood of the sacrifice that's on that mercy seat. That is wrapped up as what a propitiation is. God sent his son to stand between us and his wrath and to give us holiness. Man, what an expression of love. Do you, uh, do you have songs on your playlist that uh, when, you, when it comes up, maybe you've got it set on shuffle and you're on a long trip and certain songs come up and your wife or your kids or your husband says, whoop, don't skip that one. I like that one. My, my wife has two. One is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Life. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. <laughs> Gordon. Don't act like you don't know who he is. Y'all know who he is. Canada's greatest folk singer. 
Lord, forgive me. Now everybody's thinking of that song. Yeah. I'll tell you one, what, what the one is. It's written some time ago and recorded by a few different people. It's called Settled at the Cross. Listen to the words. How I love to read the book you wrote for me. You love the world so much you gave your son. Written there in crimson, you told me I'm forgiven. It is done. It is done. I would be the first to admit I don't deserve the kind of favor you have always shown. But you don't have to tell me. You proved how much you love me. And I know. I still know. Every word was mercy. Every breath forgave. Every drop of blood testifies of grace. So if you never speak another word of blessing, and the silence leaves me with a sense of loss, I'll remember when my heart begins to question any doubt that you loved me was settled at the cross. I don't know what you need today, friend. But the first step to getting what you need is to hear and understand, believe and employ the glorious truth that God sent his son to redeem you because he loves you that much. Well, I'm already saved. Then that ought to generate some gratitude. That ought to generate some, some desire to do what's right. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I want you to know that ache in your heart, that hole that you're, you're, you're feeling, Jesus is the only one who can fill that. You need to take advantage of the love of God. Understand this, friend. You die without Christ and you're cast into hell away from a God who loved you, who wanted you. You see, love is the embodiment of God. It's the expression of God. Can I tell you one last thing? It's the expectation of God. Verse number 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? God loved us, so we ought to love others. If you're one of his, God has every right to expect that we display agape love in our own lives. Look at verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you can't say you love God and then hate somebody else. And you don't love God like you should. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can you love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him that, we, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also, Jesus clearly equated our discipleship with love. John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love also, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen, these things I command you, that you love one another. Can I tell you, there is no clearer way to reach other people than through love. There's been a couple of times in my pastorates here and in Alabama, that and this is going to be hard for you to believe, that there's been people that were against me. Can you imagine that? I know it's unthinkable. 
And of course, when that happens, I always take the high road. But God eventually gets me to a point that I am reminded. It's not your business to change their mind, Andy. It's your business to love them. And if you'll learn to love them, I'll take care of it. You know what's happened when I've done that? Two things. One, sometimes I loved them right out of here. Lord, you just don't know what that dude's doing. I can see the Lord going, I don't know. You do realize I'm God, right? I do know. Have you prayed for him today? Well, no. I've prayed against him a couple of times, but I haven't prayed for him. Why don't you pray for him? Lord, bless brother such and such, if he's a brother at all, because you told me I have to. Amen. Next day, Lord, bless brother such and such. This time I leave out there if he really is, because you told me to. Before long, you know what you find yourself doing? Lord, I do want you to bless them. I do want you to meet their needs. Lord, I want you to help them. If there's a way we can see eye to eye on this thing, I sure would love that, Lord. But Lord, would you take care of them? Would you meet their needs? And before long, I find I mean it. And you know what happens? They either can't take it and leave, or we embrace as friends. God fixes it all. You want you want to show somebody, you want to reach somebody, love them. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not saying we ought to all get rid of our guns and get rid of our military. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, in general, you want to reach somebody, love them. My husband, my wife, they're distant. Love them. My parents just don't get me. Love them. My kids are nuts. Love them. My employer just drives me crazy. Love him. My employees, love them. I got an enemy. Love them. How? Be kind one to another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You start thinking about, what God laid aside to love us, it gets easier. So what? All right, Andy, you've preached on the love of God. I'm in a mess right now. What do I do with this? Here's what you do. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, let me make this clear. You're lost. I am not talking about being religious. I am not talking about being a member of a church. I am not talking about having gone under the water of baptism. I am saying that there has never been a time that you have realized that you've understood that you are a lost sinner headed for hell. And we all are. That's how we all start. That's our default setting. We are sinners. We have come short of God's glory. Every 
one of us. And God in his righteousness will not overlook sin. And the only thing that can be done other than sending us to hell is for somebody to pay the price for our sin. Jesus Christ, his perfect virgin-born son, came to this earth, died in our place, having, having absorbed the wrath of God for us. He paid the price for our sin that we wouldn't have to. He died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And you believe it. You don't understand it all. You can't process it all. But the best you know how, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him and him alone to be my Savior. That's what I'm saying. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how moral you think you are. I don't care what a good community member you are. I don't care how rock-ribbed a conservative you are or how bleeding heart a liberal you are. I don't care what your party affiliation is, what your denominational affiliation. I don't care how high you've risen in the ranks of your masonry. None of that matters. Because without Christ, we are all lost and undone and on our way to hell. And what you need to hear today is this. God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to suffer in your place. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. The only thing that can help you now and for eternity is to hear, understand, believe, and employ the love of God for your salvation. That's it. That's your so what. I'm lost. I need to be saved. Take advantage of God's love today. Before it's too late, that's your so what. Oh, but I'm saved, preacher. I'm on my way to heaven. Yep, and all your problems ended when that happened, didn't it? When you got saved, all your problems went away, didn't they? Because saved people never have job issues. They never have medical issues. They never have marriage issues. They never have kid issues. They, they never have personal issues. Saved people, as soon as they get saved, they walk this earth perfectly, don't they? Nope. I, in fact, up until the time of your death, most unsaved people usually have a little more fun than saved people in a lot of ways because there is pleasure in sin for a season. You start living for God, life gets more difficult, not less. So how do I navigate it? The first place you've got to start is the love of God. Because the love of God is going to motivate you to love others like you should. It's going to motivate you to follow God like you should. And I'm not saying that all you got to do is claim the love of God and everything falls into place. But that's where you start is by understanding that I serve a God who loves me. And he's not offering me these opportunities because he wants to keep me in lockstep and make me a robot. No, he loves me and wants me to enjoy the very best that I can have now and for eternity. <laughs> Having problems with my boss. What fixes it? Love. Love. That teacher hates my kid. Do you love him? You prayed for him? That principle drives me crazy. Me too. Love him. That preacher. We ain't got time to get into all that. Have you prayed for me? That deacon. <laughs> My husband. My wife, my kids, 
my coworkers, that crazy uncle. What's the answer to all of it? Love. But not Eros love. Not physical love. Not compassionate storge love. Not uh, brotherly phileo love, no. It has to be the sacrificial, unmerited, unconditional agape love that we see in our Father. I'm going to love you whether you're going to be loved or not. I'm going to love you in spite of you. I'm going to love you in spite of me. I'm going to love you because I've decided to. Why? Because that's how God loves me.